thing figured out when it comes to the psalm. A lot of it has to do with Christ, and that's the, the big background behind it. It's really challenging, to be honest with you, when we think about everything, who Christ is and how perfect his life is. And uh, really, we see the blending of, we recognize that this is the words of David, right? Uh, David wrote many of the psalms. I believe he wrote over 75 of the psalms. He wrote about half of the psalms, I believe, and uh, God used him in a mighty way, a lot of his words. The Bible says that he spoke by the Holy Spirit, and of course we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and used him in a mighty way to, to pen these uh, particular verses to us. And when we read them, it, it ought to challenge and try our hearts. And so this, this psalm really does, at least for me, you know, and I'll speak for myself personally when I look here at this psalm. And, and uh, again, just look at it through the lens of, of David. And he, he doesn't... He doesn't see the fruition, honestly. He doesn't see the fruition of what all that he's talking about uh, as he's putting these words down. Uh, the words that he puts to paper, these are going to represent what Christ is going to do thou, a thousand years later on down the line. And Peter, he'll take these words and he'll apply them to the book of Acts. Remember when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost and he says, this wasn't talking about David, this was talking about Christ. And again, Paul would use these in Acts chapter 13, and he would do the same thing. He says, this wasn't talking about David. This has everything to do with Christ. And hence, when we look at this, we're looking at what David is writing, and it just blows the mind. It's like Daniel prophesying of things that hasn't happened yet. Really, how do you do that? God. God. And so we find here uh, Psalm 16, and I think of it more as lessons from the life of Christ is what I, I've taken this to be. And this is what I've entitled, Lessons from the Life of Christ. That's all, all that I can pull out of this text, if you will. He says, preserve me. This is David crying out. This is his petition. This is his prayer. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my God. Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrow shall be multiplied, that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lions are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord, who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I, mean, I can picture Christ here as he's going out of the mountainside, and he's, he's praying all night long. A lot of us have problems praying for 10 or 15 minutes, and he's spending all night, night seasons, and praying as God instructs him. And again, it blows my mind as I'm reading through verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand, shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou would not leave my soul in hell. Again, who, who else could that be applied to? Hell is the word, uh, uh, Sheol, it's the grave. It's not talking about hell as in uh, the place of uh, eternal separation and darkness and fire and all that. It's just talking about the the place of the departed is talking about the grave is what he's talking about. He says, you will not leave my soul in hell. Who else rose victoriously over the grave other than Christ? And he's using, 
He says, my. And so it seems like it's the words of Christ. Like It's as if Christ was preaching this to us. It's not the words of David, but Christ's words. Neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's the, the decay of the body. You know, when, when you put a body into the ground, and of course it decays and it, it breaks down. And again, Job uses it. He says, oh, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He didn't see corruption. Verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Only Christ knows what's at the right hand of God. He's there right now. He's interceding, making intercession for the saints. He's praying for you and I, even if nobody else is praying tonight. We recognize that the Lord is praying for us, and He's interceding for us. He knows what the trials we're going to face, even when we walk outside of the doors. He knows the phone calls you're going to get. He knows what's going to happen at work tomorrow when you show up. And, you know, if you want to have a flat tire on your way, he, he knows all this. And thank God that he is interceding for us. He's praying for us. As uh, the Lord Jesus told Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift thee as wheat. But I've prayed for thee. And with that, let us pray as we get into the message for tonight. And we look at the lessons of Christ's life. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray uh, Lord, for your filling of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you would guide and direct me as you've done, David. I, I, I know you inspired him to give the writings of your word, but Lord, would you please use me to preach your word, to give the sense, to break it down and make it practical so that we might apply it to our lives, that we may stand in awe of the greatness of our Savior. We may rejoice in the hope that we have because of the finished work of Christ. And Lord, may you encourage our hearts tonight. May we walk out of here just stronger, better, encouraged, wanting to reach others with this wonderful gospel message. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The psalm here before us tonight, again, is, is very complex. And when we see the title of the, of the psalm itself, and it uses the word, and I probably would have butchered it, okay, but it says miktam. It's a miktam of, of David. And some have looked at that word, and they said, well, the word miktam, it means golden and they say, well, because it applies to the life of Christ, it's a golden psalm. But you want to know something, that that's not really what that word means. The word miktum is a derivative, the word of it is a derivative of a, of a verb, which means to hide. And in the sense, when you look at the word that we have, it's, it really means something that's, that's deeper below. It's, it's hidden, it's a mystery, it's, it, it signifies something that's, beyond the surface, and this is what David is trying to communicate, something that hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. It's a mystery to him as he's writing it, but it's revealed unto Peter and Paul, who's going to preach Jesus Christ and praise the Lord for that. But this is what David is writing. He says, to me, it's a mystery. But the Lord instructed me to write it anyway. David was known to be a prophetic voice used of the Holy Spirit to picture things that would happen in the future. We recognize in Psalm 22, when he uh, pens Psalm 22, all of the pictures that we find, even at the very beginning, the very first line, the very first verse of Psalm 22 uh, is, comes forth out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we recognize that those are the words from the cross. He, he, he pictures the whole thing like the strong bulls of Bashan. I like the strong imagery that he has there. Just uh, the defiance of those who were standing against the Lord, like the, 
the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the soldiers and everybody who are gathered together against Christ and are saying, if you be the Christ, get yourself down from there. And they're waiting even when he cries out. They said, well, maybe he's calling for Elijah. But again, a lot of the scenes there is picturing. It shows us what Christ is actually going to do, or the fulfillment. Jesus, you remember on the road to Emmaus when he's telling the two disciples and when he rebukes them because of their lack of faith, he says, ought not these things to be so? All the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms testify that these things are going to be. And he says, I'm the fulfillment of all these. And they're testifying of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we see this, all this coming up out of the text, this, this, so to speak, mystery again to David, but not to us because we saw, uh, we have the finished work of the, uh, of the Bible, we have the completed Bible, and we're able to read through there, and we recognize what Jesus has done for us. And Peter would quote from this psalm, Psalm 16 of the day of Pentecost. The reason why he's quoting from it on the day of Pentecost to show that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the whole point of, of everything that he's pointing out. You know, it's not that the Messiah is going to go and set up his kingdom and all that. He said, no, no, the Messiah, he would be the one who would take our sins upon himself and would be buried and would be put in an empty, put in a tomb and, and three days later come up out of that tomb. And so he uses that to show the, the real intention of what Jesus Christ came to do in his earthly ministry, to save them which are lost, not to, not to go and set up a kingdom. Eventually that will come, and I believe that the Lord will fulfill that promise, but he's pointing to the fact of, of what Jesus had to do in order to save us. You know, in order for us to go to heaven, we couldn't get to heaven in our own sense. So something has to take place. We can't... We can't save ourselves by our own power somebody has to do it and it's Christ and he uses he brings that out now Paul when he uses it over in Acts 13 he's talking about the sufficiency the sufficiency Peter talks about the certainty of the Messiah and Paul's talking about the sufficiency of of Christ's salvation but again all this comes up out of the text and that being said you know I don't believe that I can fully articulate everything and I just stand before you in my weakness as a human being to be able to articulate the best that I can everything that this psalm has to show us. And I believe it's, it's a very profound psalm at that. And so uh, I'll do the best I can as the Lord helps and guides me. But uh, this psalm, I believe, gives us hope. It gives us hope above all else. He says he uses several, a lot of vocabulary all throughout where he talks about the Lord preserving him and how he would never be moved and how he has this strong hope because of, because of the Lord. And so there's this strong hope that's extended to the believer. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he, he said this. He said, now, this is like David and Christ together. He pictures it as like two, like a fork in a river. He says, now, as a two, two bank divided streams flow side by side for a while and at last melt into one river, you can scarcely say which river is which when they're joined in one. And so Christ and his church are united in one mighty stream so that what is said of one may be said, at least in some sense, be said of the other. We are one with Jesus and consequently much that I said concerning him may also be said concerning us. And I like that. You know, because when we look at what Christ has pictured here, a lot of it does have to do with us. He's our example in every single way, and His obedience, and the way that He lived out His life, and His 
purity before us and how we would go to that cross. I believe it wasn't, you know, if it were you and I, we could think of every reason why not to do it. But him, he couldn't think of a reason not to do it. And that's amazing to me. So depicting our Lord's triumph and and life and death and resurrection and all that we have before us here in the psalm, it has a lot to offer us when we come down through. Christ, our unfailing example and true sympathizer-in-chief, I say that because a lot of times I hear this about Joe Biden, where he says, oh, he's a sympathizer-in-chief. We don't have a greater sympathizer-in-chief than the Lord Jesus Christ who's been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But it calls upon us to walk by faith as Christ walked by faith here in this life on this earth and win just as he won and rose victoriously over the grave. And one day we recognize because he lives, we shall also live. And he's coming back for us one glorious day. And I'm looking forward to that uh, bright and glorious hope. I'm looking forward to being with my Savior one day. But as we look at Hebrews chapter 12, and, and I just... Use this as a stepping stone right into the text. In Hebrews 12, it says this, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endure such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your own minds. And so he calls upon us, Paul calls upon us there in that text, to set our mind, our, our life, on the same path as Christ has set his life, to walk after him as he walked, to live in obedience as he lived in obedience to put our full weight and trust as the Lord has taught us to do over and over again throughout the whole, whole, whole life that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over again. You know, it's amazing to me when I look at what Christ has done and the fact that he would go out and, and pray and he would be, again, praying all night on the mountainside to his father. You know, Father, open, open their eyes. Remember when he's praying there with the, the, the graveside of Lazarus? Lord, I don't, I don't say it just, just for these words to be heard. Lord, I know you hear my prayer. I know you want to answer. But for their sakes, I said it. And they taught us how to pray. Even as the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, Lord, we want to know how to pray. We need to know how to pray like you pray, Lord. But how often, how often are we there all night like the Lord was there all night in prayer? You see... Well, we got to sleep, don't we? Well, sometimes there are things worth losing sleep over to spend all night with the Lord, especially when I think about uh, those who have wayward children and things like that. I tell you, if my children were wayward, I'd be up all night in prayer. There are things to be, to be just much in prayer over. So we have a lot to learn from Him as we see this uh, life of faith that He calls us to this life of trust and the psalmist in the first verse, he says, preserve me. It's an imperative command. David is essentially saying, he says, watch over me and keep me safe and, and, and just bear with me and, and, and guide me and help me preserve my life, however you want to say it. The word preserve is sufficient in of itself, but, you know, just to get the sense that 
he recognized God is watching over his life. His, his life is in the hands of God. We, we know that our days are all numbered. God knows the days from the beginning to the end. He knows all about that. And there's nothing that we could keep from God. But he asked him, he says, preserve me, O God, because he recognized God's in control of his life. So preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. It's a cry associated with a calming confidence, knowing that he could trust the Lord. So I was reading this, uh, I was reading a, a post on the internet. I mean, sometimes you can't believe everything on the internet, but I was reading this little post on the internet in preparation for the sermon for tonight. And uh, this was written by a doctor, uh, Dr. Peter Sanders, a Christian doctor. In an article that he wrote, he said, Some years ago I visited Auschwitz, death camp in the southern Poland where one and a half million Jews were murdered for the Nazis during the Second World War. At the exit, I picked up Viktor Frankl's classic work, Man's Search for Meaning, to read on the bus on the way back. And Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who amazingly survived Auschwitz. And he had a very successful practice treating people with severe anxiety and depression in the post-war years. The book describes how he survived emotionally and spiritually through such harrowing experience the reoccurrence quote, uh, quote throughout the whole book is this, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. I mean, this sounds, sounds good, doesn't it? But can I take it a little bit further than that? He who has God. It's not just the why, but it's, you know, if that why is not God, uh, then, then what's the purpose? Because only God could get us through the trials and troubles and tribulation of life. I believe, again, that it goes deeper because God, God's able to help us to conquer any of life's difficulties in which you and I are dealing with. No matter what those difficulties may be, Paul himself in the book of Romans chapter 8, and again, all of us, I mean, that's, if you would memorize a book or, or just a chapter of the Bible, <laughs> that would be one chapter uh, that I would try to memorize. But Romans chapter 8, he says this, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that, here it is, loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature should separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. David said, in thee do I put my trust. I mean, as you, you pull that Romans chapter 8 passage of Scripture, in just those few verses there, it starts with the love of Christ, and ends with the love of God, and in between, he says, we're more than conquerors because of him that loved us. Recognized in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus been all night in prayer as he's getting ready to go to the cross. Judas had already been sent out. He's going to betray the Lord with 30 pieces of silver. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, how could they? How could Judas do such a thing? You walked with him for three and a half years. You knew his goodness. You, you, I mean, there, there is, how could you be so evil? Knowing that the intention of taking the 30 pieces of silver so they could take him and murder him. All of it, of course, in God's plan. But the Lord there in the Garden of Gethsemane is the 
three disciples are back by themselves, and Jesus goes out of space to pray by himself, and he tells the disciples, he says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. And Jesus goes that short space off, and he gets down on his knees, and he cries with strong sweat drops of blood. And he says, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Again, this language that I don't entirely understand, but there's a struggle, obviously, that is going on, a sufferer uh, that's in the midst of turmoil of soul, knowing that there's imminent danger that's on the way, a sense of death that's to be expected. And then he expresses shortly afterwards, he says, not only after that, oh, my father, would be possible, let this come to part from me. He says, shortly after, he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will, as thou will. So he prays, Lord, preserve me. And so we recognize in preserving, he doesn't mean, Lord, preserve me from the trials. Not preserving from the cross. Didn't he tell his disciples, he says, for this hour, I came for this hour. He recognized where he was going. He recognized his suffering. He recognized his, the only way that I could save lost humanity is if I go to the cross. But no, it's preserving through, through every bit of this, through being beaten and his flesh stripped off of him and his beard plucked from him and the ridicule and the spitting in his face and so on and so forth. Lord, preserve me as I head to the cross by your grace. This preservation uh, looks to God for help. Looks like God preserving the nation of Israel. But again, I'm, I'm just trying to break this, this down in sort of terms that we can understand this. If we break it down and apply it to our lives and our trust, it would be like the nation of Israel as they're walking through the wilderness for those 40 years. Lord, preserve me. But of course, we recognize that the Lord had made a way so that their shoes didn't wear, their garments didn't wear, they had plenty of provisions when they get ready for the Ark of the Covenant to, or Ark of the Tabernacle to build it. They had more than enough to give for it. They weren't lacking for anything. God took care of them. Preserve me. Think of the three Hebrew children. I just press on toward this. The three Hebrew children who stood before Nebuchadnezzar and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And I just like that determination to recognize, hey, I can stand any test or any trouble or any trauma knowing that God is with me and he has his hand upon my life and there's nothing that can happen to me. Like he, told, like he showed us in the book of Job, uh, nothing happens without God allowing it to take place. Satan couldn't go beyond the bounds by which even he said, Lord, I can't go. You know you have a hedge about Job. So the essential message of the Bible for you and I tonight is to just walk by faith. And we got to recognize that. God, God knows where we are. God knows who we are. God knows how we're doing. And all he's asking for us to do is to trust him and to live by faith. And uh, it's, it's easier said than done. I admit that. It's not easy to do at all, at all times. But uh, we got to trust Him with our lives. The same love that was demonstrated on the cross of Calvary, we recognize is the same love that keeps us throughout our, 
our entire Christian life, even before that, if we're honest with ourselves. Sometimes I look back at my life, and it's amazing that, that I even survived the times, <laughs> made some foolish decisions, did stupid things, and lucky to be alive on other occasions. <laughs> and uh, you're like, God, I'm glad you saved my life. <laughs> but it says, he, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? And that's throughout all our Christian life. He says, I have it available for it. I'll, I'll keep you, I'll preserve you, I'll take care of you. But I believe that also means we got to come to him as well. Just as we cannot save ourselves, we recognize that we can't live for God by ourselves. We need his help. I like the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, As we receive Jesus Christ, so walk ye in him. So we're called upon as believers to put our trust in God. And, and the word trust is used many times throughout the, the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, the equivalent would be faith and belief and those kind of words. But in the Old Testament, it's used 152 times. And the, the, the word that we have there, is, it's, it's um, can I say it to you this way? The book of Ruth, it has the idea of taking refuge. Like when Boaz told Ruth, he says, I'm glad that you come to take refuge under the wings of the Almighty, under God's watch care. It means to lean on. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, lean not to our own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He should direct your path. It means to wait for. So again, as God preserves us, we, we are to, to wait for. We are to expect God to be there with us every step of the way. There's this life of, of devotion that we are called to. David said, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. That's verses 2 and verse 3. The psalmist affirming that the life of faith is a life of devotion here, dependent upon the one true God, and again, I recognize it's... it's the Lord. The Lord, and I don't always understand it, but it's the Lord speaking. Because the pronoun there, my, and, and what was it in verse 10? He says, For thou would not leave my soul in health. That applies to the Lord, and it also applies to verse 2, doesn't it? O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my, my Lord. My goodness extendeth not to thee. And it seems like this, it seems like he, he's, he's saying that, Lord, you're, you're my Father, you, you are sovereign over all. Again, Jesus was the Son of God. Again, I know the Trinity, and I believe the Trinity, I believe the three in one. I really do. But the Lord shows us submission to the Father, to the will of the Father every step of the way. What do you think he calls us to? Submission. Obedience. Obedience to the cross, Pastor, yes, obedience to the cross. The Bible tells us over Philippians 2 that he was obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient unto the, the cross to the point of death. I believe he calls us to a life of obedience until the day that we take our last breath. It's not like we obey the Lord part of the time and then uh, obey him when it's convenient and then not when it's not convenient, you know what I mean? And then he uses that word, my goodness extendeth not to thee. He doesn't need to show his goodness to, to God. He is good. 
the Lord was the full revelation of God, full of grace and truth. The only way that we recognize that God is love is through what we saw demonstrated on the cross of Calvary. The only way that we know much about God is because of what Jesus has told us. We wouldn't know about heaven or hell except for what Christ has told us. Of course, what's been given in the Scripture, I understand that. But when Christ came, I mean, He unveiled truths as nobody ever could. No, His goodness that was extended was extended to us, wasn't it? For He loved us. He loved lost humanity. That while we were yet sinners, He died for us. Yes, His, 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 uh, his extending the goodness was to us, and though we don't deserve it, He you know, reigns upon the just and the unjust. He, he, he gives... Uh, sunshine, rain, crops, all that. He, he shows it to all of us. Remember when Christ came, born of the Virgin Mary. We're getting ready for the Christmas season. The angels appeared on that hillside of Bethlehem. Shepherds watching their sheep and then the voices of the angels as they cry, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Goodwill to men, what was that? Well, he told them about a Savior who they would find in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Goodwill to men, knowing that he would be that sacrificial lamb for us. I think they recognized it, though many today seem to have forgotten it. They were speaking of the goodness of God toward men. And in other words, what we're finding here, what I'm doing will glorify God. We recognize that Jesus said in, in John chapter 17, the glory, he wanted to return to the glory that he had with the Father before he came to this earth. But what he was doing was for us, for a lost and dying world, nothing can replace what God does for me. Paul. Paul in Acts chapter 14. He goes into a place, it seems like it's like with the barbarians and heathens and that kind of thing. He's trying to reason with them. Of course, this is the place where they, uh, I believe it's the same place where they tried to call him Jupiter and I forget what they call Barnabas, but another lesser God or what have you, because they saw what they were able to do and they would go out and uh, try to have a celebration and a feast and all kinds of stuff. And Paul ran, went, ran out amongst them and began to, tear his clothes and tried to tell him he says you know you don't know what you're doing we're not gods we're men just like you they began to try to tell them who God was he says listen don't you see that you've been on the receiving end of God's goodness God's kindness the rain that comes down upon your cross where, where does that come from you think some man made that rain come down? Because man can't do that. I mean, last I checked, I remember when I was little, my mother tried to convince me that Indian rain dances were, were true, and we would be out there as kids dancing around in circles, and no rain ever came. That never happened. Do you know what I mean? Where do you think that rain came from? Where do you think those crops came from? Where, where, do you think, where do you think the happiness that you're able to enjoy, the families, the homes, the things you've been blessed, where, where does all that come from? 
God provided for you food. He provided for you shelter. He's taken care of you. He's met your needs. All this is a good gift from God. Every gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift come down from the Father of, of lights, in whom there's no variables, there's a shadow of turning. He giveth liberally to all men and abradeth not. I mean, he doesn't rebuke them for asking for wisdom or for whatever they may need. But all we can say is, how good has God been to us? It's been very good. I'd say he's been beyond good. This experience uh, that's been extended to us, this goodness, this grace of God that's been extended to us is to be shared with the lost and dying world. He came to his own and his own received him not. And that didn't stop the Lord from going to the lost sheep of Israel. I mean, he went everywhere that he possibly could to try to win them over. But when they refused it, that grace came unto you and I and we're able to, 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 to enjoy that salvation that came to us, to both to the Jew and the Gentile, both. Um, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Amen. And how wonderful to be called the saints of God because of what God has done for us. Listen, uh, I, I don't believe in the Catholic model of saints or sainthood. But the Bible calls you and I saints. Saints, in other words, to be sanctified and set apart, uh, called out assembly, called unto the Lord to live un, for Him, under, for His glory, not for ourselves. Just giving ourselves in obedience and humility unto the Lord. That's what we need to do. And He delights in us. Brother Dennis, it blows my mind that the Lord would delight in us. Of all people, I'm thinking, you delight in me. Lord, you, you know I messed up earlier today. You know that thought I had. You know those times I presumed upon your grace. You know those times I didn't always do right. You know those times where I did something that I really didn't want to do, though I know I should have done it. But yet you delighted me. I, I remember studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I was preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I came to that first chapter, and I remember trying to prepare to study and preach the message, and how Paul was talking about how they were going to be preserved blameless until the coming of the day of the Christ. I'm like, what? You're talking about the Corinthian church? You're talking about the one who is divisive and causing trouble and can't seem to do anything right and they're presuming upon the Holy Spirit and they think that they're spiritual and they're trying to do it in the energy of the flesh? You're talking about them, Lord? You're saying that they have everything that they need? <laughs> to work out your will upon this earth, to do the work of God and to reach lost souls. You're talking about the Corinthians? Those who are going out and committing fornication and all, all kinds of idolatry, things like that, you're talking about them? That blew my mind. But the Lord loves us. That He still puts up with us and he still works with us, chastening his children, trying to get us in line, trying us to wake up, <laughs> look, see, understand what I'm trying to do with your life. I have a godly heritage for you. I have gifts and the calling of God. I have, have all these things that I want to do with you and through your life. And I, I want to use you in a powerful way if you'll just let me. The only one that's standing in the way of my power being seen through you is you. The 
This life of faith has a separation from other gods. It's pictured in verse 4. I, I mean, I don't know how much I want to get through this psalm, all right? So just bear with me. The separation. You see, they, he pictures here, he says, I have no desire. He says, their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer nor take up their names into my lips. As grace is available, yet they reject it and they go after other gods. It was in the days when Jesus walked upon the face of the earth, and it's still going on today. And those same sorrows that they're going after are just multiplied to them. It's, it's what they have done to themselves, not what God has done, done to them. They're picking their own poison or choosing their own sorrows or raping what they have sown. John told us in 1 John chapter 5, I believe it is, he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's anything that steals our affection away from God. It's, it's when we, we try to go after the things of the world, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for the love of, 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 of lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So he tells us to keep ourselves from idols and to watch out for our affections for the world. This place of separation in our lives is because we have the Holy Spirit that's dwelling within us. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us, What concord hath Christ with Bilal, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols for you, or the temple of the living God? As God has said, I will dwell in them, and I'll walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what God wants, by the way. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you unto myself, and I'll be a father unto you, and you shall be as my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. That's God inviting us to have a relationship with Him. I found this, and I'll share it with you. But this little, I don't know if you call it a quote or a note or a saying or what have you, but I'll just share it with you. It says, sin never changes. If objects which once seemed lovely look loathsome now, if pleasures once desired are detested now, if what we once eagerly sought we now shun and shrink from, it's not because sin is changed, but blessed be God and praise be ascribed to His grace. We are changed. We are changed. And I love the fact that... Uh, you know, God is, is changing us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Um, let me hasten on here, verse 5. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. You know, when he talks about this, this cup, this inheritance that he has, we recognize uh, for the book of Numbers, there's a children of the Levi were separated unto the Lord. They didn't, when they went into the promised land, they were not given an inheritance like all the other tribes of Israel were given. They had the, the allotted lands. They would go out and divide the land. Dan would be up to the farthest north. And, uh, of course, uh, Bethlehem and Judah, they would be the farthest south. And, uh, but they would divide up the lands among themselves. And the Levites would live in and among all the tribes of Israel throughout. Uh, there would be a concentration, of course, I believe, toward Jerusalem where the temple would be set up. But nonetheless... The Bible tells us that Levi was not given an inheritance. And what did the Lord tell them? 
What did he tell Levi? He says, I will be your inheritance. God says, I'll be your inheritance. And when he says, I'll be your inheritance, it seems to me that what the Lord is pointing out here is that he's, he's this high priest that's over us. He's the one that has this inheritance that he wants to share with us. And let me, maybe, let me just conclude with, with, with this, if I will. Over to Isaiah chapter 53. Let me get over there. And I'll pick up more of this next, next week, Lord permitting. In Isaiah 53, says in verse 10, he says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, and thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him, here it is, a portion a portion with the great. And he should divide the spoil with the strong because he had poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. God has an inheritance that he wants to share with, with those of us who trust in his son. We use the word portion that's there. He uses the same word in verse 5 where it says the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. The Lord has a portion uh, an inheritance that he wants to give to his children. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1, 3, where Paul says, Blessed be God and the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Here it is, in Christ Jesus. Listen, guys, we, we, have, we have been blessed beyond measure when we think about the adoption that we've received, when we think about the life that we've been given, We've been justified, redeemed, set free, given power over sin, a message to spread. We've been given gifts of the Holy Spirit to use for His glory to serve here in the church house. It's, it's incredible, it really is that he would bless us with so much and then promise us heaven on top of all that, knowing that he's going to come back some, someday soon, some glorious day, to have this, this great relationship. And I'm tried, I'm challenged, again, let me just conclude with this. So I'm challenged by the relationship that I must have with my heavenly Father. The relationship like Christ had with his uh, with his father, not, not in the same way that you and I would have, because he was the only begotten son of God. We're only called sons and gods by proxy of the work of, the finished work of Jesus Christ. But that relationship that he calls us to, to have and to live in obedience to him, to say, no matter what we are going through, to recognize God's hand is upon us and that he has these blessings that he wants to bestow upon us and the work that he wants to do, if we'll just yield ourselves, all he's waiting for us to do is say, Lord, I'm ready for you to work. I'm tired of doing it my own way. And tonight, I just want to step out of the way and say, Lord, use me. But it's a daily decision. 
That's one of those things where people come into a church service and they think, oh, yes, I got victory. And then an hour later, they're like, uh, maybe I didn't get what I thought that I. You got to die daily to self. Every single day. Living in obedience to the will of the Father. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12, I said I was going to quit, didn't I? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, that you might prove was that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All right, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for tonight. Those who are gathered together, Lord, I thank you for uh, the fact that these are sacrificing to be here tonight, coming out in the darkness and uh, coming away after working a full day at, a, at a work. And Lord, they're here just to learn more about you, just to serve you, to live for you. And Lord, I pray you would just help us to walk in obedience as Christ walked in obedience. As he would go to that cross for us. And there are things that we struggle with doing, and yet you paid the ultimate sacrifice, and all you call us to do is be living sacrifices as a result of what you've done. Lord, help us to, to present our bodies, to be yielded to you, to be used for your glory tonight, to make this daily decision to say, help me uh, in, my, in my giving and in my serving and in my, in my sharing the gospel, in my home, in my workplace, wherever I go, Lord, please help us to be salt and light in this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.